Good day, watch fans, and welcome to episode 60 of Fratello On Air. RJ will be taking over the mic very shortly, and he will be talking to Christoph Granger-Hare, the CEO of IWC. We hope you enjoy the show. So, how are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Thank you. We are here in our new studio facility, and it just struck me the other day how, ironically, things have changed over the last 12 months. You know, this used to all be uh, meeting rooms and the like, and now wherever I go, it's either a broadcasting studio, a podcasting studio, a portal hologram studio. <laughs> it's really gone to... Uh, uh, the world on Zoom in in less than twelve months. But how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I uh, I have to. I, ju- I just told uh, Edwin that uh, it it went from one side of traveling every other week to not non traveling at all. Yeah. And uh, although it. I uh, I really love my uh, wife and daughter dearly, I can't wait that's to uh, to to leave the house and go to Switzerland again. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. But uh, I must say, you know, although I'm of course missing. Uh, seeing people, seeing places, I am not missing the traveling, the technical traveling side of things. And it's quite interesting because I often thought that this was like a, a really key part of my life before because it's been quite extreme for quite a long time. But then when you look back, I don't think I've missed an aircraft or an airport lounge or a hotel for that matter for a single second since lockdown. So that's quite quite interesting what happens. But, but you can't say you don't miss an aircraft if you are presenting pilot's watches. Well, an aircraft that will, you know, an, an, an engaging aircraft, uh, I, I would miss every day of the week. But, uh, you know, sitting in the back of the metal tube, uh, watching things on in-flight entertainment is, does not really qualify. No, that's true. That's true. aircraft experience. <laughs> I just spoke to our Spitfire pilot, Matt Jones, just a second ago, and he's doing, he's going out in the Spitfire this morning, and he's actually doing a flyby for a 100-year-old birthday, a 100-year birthday of a fighter ace in the south of the UK, and he takes his his, uh, his plane out this morning and uh, does a low a low pass over the gentleman's house, and that, of course, is something I would love to do today. <laughs> Definitely. Wow. Do you, do you fly yourself? No, I mean they let me hold the stick occasionally. I don't think I have the spatial, uh, situational kind of three D awareness and the uh, the reaction speed that you'd actually need for for proper flying. I've always been tempted, but I do enjoy those moments. I remember when we are. Uh, taking the, um, the Silver Spitfire out um, on, on the way back uh, last well, two years ago, yeah. um, I had a chance to to um, actually be in charge of the stick of the Spitfire for a few turns. And it's amazing to see how balanced that aircraft is, especially when you compare it to the Mustang. I just had a, a couple of goes in the Mustang the, um, a couple of months before that in the U.S., and the Mustang is sort of the muscle car of aircraft. You know, it goes very fast in a straight line, but on the turns, it behaves very differently. It's quite quite rackety. And the Spitfire, it's just like, it's got that elegance to it. It's beautifully centered. And all the stick inputs are really minute. And the aircraft reacts beautifully and centers beautifully. And you can just see what a great racing plane designer RJ Mitchell actually was. And that really translated in, in the Spitfire being such a, a pilot's aircraft. It really flies beautifully. Yeah. So for you, uh, a confirmation that it's the perfect uh, association with the, with the watches. Yes, although that Mustang V Spitfire discussion will never see the end of. I mean, you know, I even I even had when we when we first announced the partnership, I had people write to me, sending me a two to three a page a technical comparison, uh, saying that the Mustang is the superior aircraft, and how could we support the Spitfire? And I don't think you'll ever settle this argument. So, yes, it's one of those. Yeah. 
Um, so, so if if you're flying in a the metal tube, as you uh, as you say, uh, do you still look? If you see the pilots, do you still pay attention to which watch they are wearing, or not at all? I, I do, of course. I, I do, of course. But you know the 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 world of of commercial aviation is 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 really quite its own thing. You know, and my focus, our, our focus in recent year. Has, has really been twofold. It's been all of the activation around the, the Spitfire community because I was so excited about doing the longest flight, which really was a, a fantastic thing to complete before uh, COVID struck. It's going to lead to a, an official world record as well, which we're very excited about. And, and those are the things that that where we could really learn from, uh, especially Matt and Steve, and, and, and those conditions in uh, non-pressurized single-seater, single-piston engine aircraft that really gave us absolutely valuable inputs on the time zone on Spitfire Chrono, et cetera, and further development. And then our work with the uh, US Navy pilots, which we started really uh, seriously three years ago, and we then presented the SFTI, which was the first real cooperation piece with the uh, Strike Fighter Tactics School of the Pacific out of Naval Air Station Limor, which was the first Top Gun graduate piece. And that's expanded so rapidly that that's really where we spent all of our time in terms of professional pilots' watches was to meet all of the different schools, you know, we did the uh, 50th anniversary watch for the Top Gun instructors in Fallon. Uh, we did now uh, the, the Golden Wings edition for the newly qualified naval aviators. And then loads and loads of fleet squadrons from all different air wings, you know, Marine Corps air wings, all the way to the Royal Australian Air Force, to the uh, French Navy air wing. And to get all of those inputs, design briefings, feedback from all of these different types of aviators is so fascinating. And of course, it brings about watches like the Mojave Desert and watches we're launching in the Top Gun collection a little bit later in the year, they directly come out of all of those discussions and the inspiration we get. If you want to design a, a pilot watch from scratch, would a pilot watch that meets all the requirements of today's pilot, would it look totally different? Would it have different functions and would it have different aesthetics? No, I don't think I don't think it does because I think the the basic principles at the heart of the pilots and observation watches uh, have remained unchanged. You know, this is all at the end of the day the backbone of all of this is the absolute backup functionality of astronavigation. And for astronavigation, in principle, you need very precise and very legible time available in all conditions, you know, in different uh, G-force pressure environments, in, in different temperature environments, and so on. And when you go all the way back to the uh, Mark 11 watch of 1948, we made for the Royal, uh, Royal Air Force and later many other air wings, it's still regarded in the industry today as one of the most precise hand-wound movements ever to be made, and it was very robust and easy to maintain. And back yeah. in the day, they actually it was an um, uh, astronomic-grade uh, tool watch that was actually, when it was in service with the Royal Air Force, it was solely regulated and maintained by the Greenwich Observatory, um, the, the institution in London that looks after Greenwich Mean Time and the time zones, um, and it was really the highest-grade type of observation watch. And here, the basic principle is precision and legibility. And that was expressed in the big pilots, expressed in the Mark 11 and so on. And the second key thing for pilots is the chronograph because the chronograph, um, when you have uh, waypoints to hit, when you have rendezvous points to hit during an air display, uh, the chronograph gives you that vital timing information between waypoints that together with your speed, you can calculate where you need to be and where you are. And there again, it, it seems like almost um, academic and theoretical nowadays. 
but you know, it's especially people like Matt Jones uh, tell me repeatedly that they always run the chronograph from waypoint to waypoint because okay. if for whatever reason the electronic instrumentation fails, which does happen, then the ultimate backup is you've got your speed on your manual instrument, you've got your time, and you can still determine where you're going. And there's actually one story where Matt actually flew an air, air show rendezvous simply on his chronograph and his, his manual instruments, and it still worked. You know, so yes, it's great that we have all the modern tech on board, but the pilot, the mechanical pilot's watch still is the ultimate backup instrument. In most cases, we won't need it for those reasons, but at least we know it can still absolutely do that. So I don't think the fundamentals of pilot's watches uh, have changed. Um, there's many, many upgrades, of course, in design and many modern expressions. And that, again, I find so fascinating when you speak to different parts of the professional pilot's community. There's a fantastic show in the US called Tailhook, where all of the naval aviators are coming together in Reno and Nevada and in a big exhibition inside a casino. And it's kind of the only time you are, you know, as an exhibitor like IWC, you're sort of next to, you know, Martin Baker and Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and all of these companies, which is like a totally different environment for IWC. And when you listen to the conversations, you we get such different briefing inputs. So you have units and squadrons that are looking really at super subdued non-reflective tactical watches or serotonin banging around the cockpit and it's got to be like really low observability and you know all of this uh, expressed in the serotonin pieces and then you have others that really want to express the pride of their squadron their different aircraft type and if people go no 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 no, we want stainless steel we want Santoni leather we want light blue backing we want contrast stitching <laughs> so there's this elegance and the luxury element of this piloting what makes that world so unique and i sometimes think you know in diving watches and things it's all very sort of technical and survival in pilots you have that balance between yes functional instrument watch but also there is there's a great amount of pride of history of romanticism that also goes into those pieces yeah so what you see today is that uh, people they have this no nostalgic feeling towards uh, these watches and they still would like to consider them as tool watches but in the end like you say it's it's also a luxury watch in the end today. Yeah. And if 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 it, if you compare it to 20 years ago, <clears throat> let's say with a big pilot with a with a with a power reserve to 5002, do you see uh, certain differences in in how this watch is being perceived then and now? What what what's the major difference between like 20 years ago and now? How people perceive that big pilot watch? Yeah, I think the, uh, the the key difference that I see is the fact that um, you know in in in, in those days when two thousand two when the the five thousand two was launched, I think the the perception of IWC as a tool watch maker was very much Eurocentric in terms of the the kind of um, buyer and the kind of communication environment that appealed to. So it's very sort of male-dominated, oversized wristwatch trend in, in those days, a very specific engineering community that really was found in the heart of Europe and a few other places. And then, of course, this started an industry trend um, that led to a whole host of these oversized, more utilitarian watch designs, which really had its, its, its main moment, I would say, in the mid-2000s, probably, uh, around about that moment in time. And today, of course, you know, being a global watch company, um, our perception is much broader and we see a much broader shift towards sports watches than it would have been the case maybe 15 years ago. And this also taking hold in many parts of Asia and we're seeing 
many buyers, when I look at now our Spitfire chronograph in bronze, you know, the 41 millimeter chronographs that are already in the market, these are really watches that I enjoyed by buyers all over the planet and that are not specific to uh, certain countries where there is still this preference for very large and, and very um, instrument-like watches that have a real presence on the wrist. And I think our job at this point is to broaden the portfolio a little bit and make sure that we have uh, watches in, in sort of complementary sizes, complementary dial layouts and ergonomics uh, that really give a, a much wider choice. So yeah. 36 millimeter, there, there is a point where to a large segment of people who like the design, it's simply just not wearable. And this is what we're trying to address with the big pilot 43. Yeah. So, so uh, last week I had the pleasure to see the, the big pilot 43 and mm -hmm. uh, uh, the chronograph in uh, 41. And is the, the redesign of that big pilot 43, which I uh, uh, very uh, uh, much uh, uh, like to, to try, I have to say, it was my favorite. Yeah. Um, was it something that was a request from the market or collectors? Or is it something that you say, okay, we want to broaden the, the collection, make something in different sizes, and this was a logical yeah. uh, result of that? Yeah, there's, I think it's, it's slightly different starting points for the Chrono 41 and the Big Pilot 43. In the Big Pilot 43, I've, I've been long thinking about um, whether it's possible to actually create a Big Pilot that looks and feels and has a presence every bit like a Big Pilot, but it's actually much more wearable because I think there is a, a very fundamental ergonomic limitation to the original 46 millimeter design and that crown that you can feel on the skin. And these are clearly points that we wanted to address in the engineering. There's also um, a, a trend in, in that's been, uh, you know, in, in the market for quite some time where, you know, there is a, a, a section of our clients who are very much asking for the purer uninterrupted dials without date window, without power reserve. And that's why you saw last year in the Portuguese. We have a 42 millimeter classic Portuguese automatic that has date and power reserve. And then we introduced the Portuguese automatic 40 last year with the 82 caliber movement that only has a small second, but no date and really speaks to those clients who are looking for that much purer, yeah. uh, simpler dial that often comes with smaller case sizes as well. That seems to be to me one, one trend that people are looking both for classic, smaller proportioned freehand watches that are quite reduced in, in their dial expression. Similarly, for the 46 versus the 43, we said, okay, let's find, you know, based on the 82 caliber movement, a complementary dial layout. Let's go very much back to the all luminous numbers and all luminous hour markers, uninterrupted uh, dial of the original Big Pilot, and combine that with a reproportioned case size to give that wearability and that purity in the design. Yeah, yeah. I, um, some people sometimes, uh, uh, well, we, we see the feedback on a, on a website and social media. Um, they are very purist and they say it's an iconic watch and you should not touch it and so on. Mm. Um, and there, I, I feel that there is the biggest challenge how to change an iconic model such as the big pilot yeah, sure. so without sure. ruining it. And uh, I think sure. you did a marvelous job there, but I think that's like a, a super big challenge for designers. It is. It's, it's a nightmare. <laughs> Not yeah. for sure, because imagine, I mean, for me, always the, the being a designer, I sometimes feel for other designers. So, you know, one of the most outrageous challenge when it comes to that for me was whoever was uh, redesigning the Land Rover Defender. You know, this yeah. is, I mean, it's an impossible task because as you say, you have a very clear design DNA but you also have a vehicle which clearly by today's standard is not a modern car anymore. 
Yeah. And of course, you have the purist community who will say, whatever you touch in this Defender, it's absolutely non-negotiable. But then you also have the limitation of this being a modern drivable car. And as much as we like the idea of purist tractor, at the end of the day, you want to get from A to B in some level of comfort. So these are extremely difficult tasks when you're dealing with an iconic DNA. And whether you do a big pilot or you do a G-Class with Gordon Wagner, who did an amazing job on that, by the way, or you do the Defender, it, it is a similar kind of challenge. But the question is really, how do you preserve enough of the DNA and how do you make sure that when you look for me, always the, the absolute ultimate test is lining all of the models up from 1940 to 2021. And the lineage needs to be absolutely clear. And every step has to feel like, yes, that's a logical development of this product. Right? And again, coming back to my favorite comparison, you know, a 911 from today is a completely different car from 911 in 1964. However, all lined up with the exception of that model in the early 2000s. They all look at the 911s. Nobody's yeah. going to argue with that. And, and I think you, you can never um, get this universally right in terms of every uh, purest section of, of your, your customer base agreeing that this is the, the, the best possible design choice. But on balance, you want to have this iconic DNA that runs through the line with some wearability and modern upgrades that these watches occasionally do need uh, yeah. to become really a versatile modern sports watch. And I would also say we still have the 46. We're going to continue to build on the 46 design. You see that with our new perpetual calendar with new watches coming this year. And for people who are looking for that classic proportion of the big pilot from 2002, it's it's still in the portfolio. Yeah. So the, the, the other watch we... we had here was the, the Pilot's Watch uh, Chronograph, and that's yeah. a watch I have always been uh, uh, looking at when I started uh, collecting watches in the 90s. Yeah. And um, it always has been one of my, my favorite uh, Pilot's Watches. And yeah. um, so it was nice to, to see the new model with the, with the one with the blue dial. And um, it has a new movement, but when I look at the dial, it has this very typical 70-70-50s layout. Yeah. So, well, yes, but the running second, um, 7750, the running second is at nine o'clock on our 69 yes, yes. calibers at six o'clock. So, that's how that's you what. identify those. But, um, so playing a uh, devil's advocate here a bit, why do you think it was necessary to replace the 707050 base movement with your in house developed movement mm -hmm. uh, if you decide to keep that layout anyway, except for the running seconds? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. Um, I'm, I'm in no way uh, criticizing uh, any element of the 7750. I think what we want to do with the uh, 69 caliber chronograph movement is that the the capability that we can develop based on such a ramp up and such an introduction as 69 caliber is amazing from the perspective of the learnings and the engineering that goes into a movement like that that benefits at the end of the day all of our IWC watches across the board. And when we started, you know, the, the process of the manufacturing center. We really set out to create our vision of watchmaking for the next 150 years. You know, we, we launched that for our 150th anniversary, having been in this uh, facility where I'm sitting now for the previous 150 years. And of course, after multiple expansions and the hodgepodge of different buildings and extensions and studios and cramming things into spaces that are not ideally suitable for modern watchmaking, um, this was a unique opportunity we absolutely relished to be able to set up the process from scratch to redefine the ergonomics, the working spaces, the processes, the communication between the teams, and then to be able to experiment with it. And of course, having this internal makes you much, much, much faster in your learning process because the paths between you know, input and output are very, very short. 
all of the management is directly integrated into the watchmaking areas. Our 500-hour test is directly next to the assembly area. And by now, for key watches such as the Portuguese Chrono, we're assembling the entire watch from base movement to finished watch strap in the same team. And that means that the, the learnings and the quality improvements and all of that are shared very quickly, are fed into the movement chain very, very quickly. And in the end, we are creating a better and better product for our clients at many different price points. You know, this used to be uh, simply the, the privilege of, of sort of 10,000 euro plus price points. And we can now offer that in a simple Spitfire Automatic uh, at, uh, uh, with the 32 caliber uh, all the way through the core chronographs. And then, of course, it's also something that our clients appreciate. And I understand it's I'm not saying that simply the notion of in-house makes it a better watch. But really, I think when you when you come and see what goes into the 69 caliber development and where we've gotten to in such a short time from introducing it in the Spitfire two years ago to Portuguese chronograph last year to the Palace chronograph this year, you're really creating an amazing watch at this price point for our clients and be able to showcase it through the uh, Sapphire glass case back with more waterproofing 10 bar. I think it's just a very, very exciting package for somebody who's looking for that. As you described, when you start off that first watch that combines the watchmaking of the chronograph, the iconic design of the pilots, I I think it's a perfect package. Very good. And uh, last question, is there also an advantage in terms of servicing for that customer of that new Pilot's chronograph with the in-house movement. Is there an advantage of that watch over the, the one with the previous movement? The key advantage we have in, in the movement technology now is that through the 500-hour tests, the movement performance at the point of assembly and at the point of production is 100% recorded through the 500-hour test process. And that allows us, when the watches come back for service later on, to very quickly compare the performance and the running performance of the watch 5, 10, 20 years down the line with the original data set. And that, of course, increases the speed at which we're able to analyze and adjust watch movements and service. So overall, this is really a two-pronged approach. On the one hand, it's a massive improvement and continuous improvement in the quality and reliability of these movements. And secondly, also the lead time in servicing, which is reduced due to that in-house capability and the data sets we have to very quickly understand how the movements need to be adjusted during the service process. Thank you for your uh, answers and for your time. I enjoyed uh, talking to you and uh, uh, looking at the, the new watches. I'm looking forward to uh, yeah to see some more of them uh, in the flesh.